Thursday, August 31st. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight, we revisit Non Madole out in the Pacific. And we'll have with us Lady Joe Carson and, and her consort, uh, John. Now, we will recall our adventures in our favorite Lemurian jungle-shrouded lost city, way out in the Pacific Micronesia on Panape Island. Now, Lady Jo, having done her 2009 film, Dancing with Gaia, featuring an equally ancient ruins in Malta. Now, she visited Nanmadol a few years after us. I was out there in 1988, and Mark was Mark Nelson was out there uh, ten, uh, either ten years before I was, and and uh, Mark and his, and his wife Marlene they got they got some underwater footage of the underwater city that's off off the breakwater in Nanmadol, and we showed that in our film Beyond Lemuria. Now our broadcast tonight, the reason why we're doing it tonight is prompted by the recent Netflix and History Channel episodes featuring Graham Hancock and Hatcher Childress, respectively and respectfully, both of whom confirm and reprise the physical evidence for a pre-Ice Age lost continent in the Pacific, which we presented on video 16 years before they did. Of course, since uh, since then, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is 12,000 years old, 12, well, actually older than that, 12,000 B.C., and Gunung Pandang in Indonesia, which the lowest levels of, of, of Podang Mountain go back to 20,000 B.C. They've been unearthed and which we will add to our Lemurian mix tonight. But even these revelations do not satisfy mainstream archaeology. They have been persecuting Graham Hancock while ignoring Hatcher Childress and are beyond Lemuria, which, which Hatcher Childress used to carry in his catalog. Well, now you can get Beyond Lemuria, our film, which, which features Nanmadol, and Lady Joe's Dancing with Gaia, which has which has film of the Malta ruins from pokerunion.com. That's our bookstore. So drop in and check us out. Now, before we get right on into this, uh, I want to check and see if uh, if our our guests are on board. Lady Joe, are you there? Right here. Oh, you're right there. Let me kind of set the stage for this. What got this whole non-Madol thing started with us is a 1911 fantasy novel called Moonpool. And this was by, by a William Randolph Hearst editor, Abraham Merritt. And Abraham Merritt, his hobby was writing, writing fantasy romances. And he was, he, was, uh, he was a newspaper editor. He was also kind of an, anthro- he was kind of an amateur anthropologist. And he wrote this novel, Moonpool, which was set out in on Nanmadol. And in the novel, a number of adventurers penetrated 
down into an underworld under under the city of Nanmado. And um, this is this cavern world under there, which was inhabited by an ancient civilization that had high technology. And also, one of the most interesting things about Moonpool was that there was a, a strange interdimensional creature called the Dweller, which was a creature of light. It rose above the vault on Nanduas, which uh, both Lady Joe and I have been into. In, in, in our film, Beyond Lemuria, you can see me coming out of the vault. But in the, in the, in the novel, Moonpool, the Dweller, this, this creature of light, which stole people's souls, it rose up out of the vault. And, and it's best described as looking like the Tree of Life with all the colors, uh, you know, all the colors of the Manuta Mundum, we call it. We did a, a show some time ago, which is in the archives, and those of you who are students of the Hermetic Hour, you can go back in our archives and find it, called Decoding the Moon Pool. Because Merritt, when he wrote this, was working for Hearst, and, and he was, Hearst and Merritt were both very anti-communist. And this book came out right around, right during the Bolshevik Revolution. And quite frankly, the Tree of Life being an evil interdimensional creature, unfortunately, it was cabalistic. And so, now this is kind of curious, at least that's for Moonpool. But that has translated itself not just into our interest, into my interest in in Nanmadol. I was... I wanted to go out there because I wanted to find, you know, some traces of, of a lost civilization. So, but I read I read the Moon Pool when I was in high school. And I was fascinated. Anyway, Giorgio Sukolos during during their this latest uh, ancient alien segment on Non Madol, Giorgio Sukolos talked about the natives today thinking that lights, strange lights, rose over Non Madol. In, in the, at night, and I was I was wondering whether whether Giorgio uh, got that idea from from the moon pool because I questioned some of the some of the locals very carefully about the moon pool, and I expected to find a bar in Colonia, the city named the moon pool. It would be a great name for the bar, but unfortunately nobody named it named it that, and nobody nobody told me of anything. Any, I didn't uncover any folklore that matched anything Merritt had talked about uh, in the moon pool. And uh, anyway, Graham Hancock uh, did did a, a show on Amadol on Netflix. He actually dove dove off the breakwater and showed some pictures of what might be might be ruins of the under underwater city. Now we beat him to it. According to local legend, and this was recounted both by, by Sukalos and Childress and also by Hancock, two brothers coming from the mainland, or that would be China, two brothers arrived back in, in our Middle Ages around 1100 uh, A.D. In, in Ponape and said they were descendants of people who had originally built a, a, a city uh, out of the island. but. When these two brothers, Olusopo and Olusipo, when they finally got down to the to where Don Madol is, to what's called Heaven's Reef, they looked down into the lagoon and they saw the ruins of Kanamwiso, 
the sunken city. They saw the ruins. That must have been a very clear day because there's only one day, there's only one month of the year that when the water in that lagoon is clear enough to, to really do any good photography. Uh, Mark Nelson dove down 80 feet off the breakwater. We have that footage shown in our film, Beyond Lemuria. Lady Joe, you want to you want to take over and 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 talk about uh, uh, some of the some of the experiences you had out there? Uh, sure. Um, it's almost like I don't know where to begin because there was really a lot of things that we encountered there that were extremely special and had a, a numinous quality about them. I'm going to describe one experience, um, and then John Reed, my husband here, is going to describe a different thing. Um, we went out there to Nanmadol and, you know, did the whole adventure of finding it and, you know, doing the walk and seeing all these really impressive buildings made out of huge um, six-sided um, volcanic rock, I guess it is, yeah. made out of basalt. And um, columnar. columnar basalt, right. And they're built like um, like log cabins, the construction style, except they're huge. And uh, so you, you're going between these buildings, and, uh, and it's jungle, and then at a certain point, the, the path is the, depending on the tide, but most of the time you have to basically cross the water and get your feet wet and up to about our, I don't know, ankles and knees. Um, and then we crossed over to this other section um, where there were some larger buildings, including this um, place called Nandawas, which is in the northern corner of Nanmadal, all of which is on the eastern side of the island, the larger island of Panape. So, so we're going along, and we encounter this uh, Nandawas, which this particular building, if I recall correctly, is the cemetery of the king. And the first person that, that greeted us there was yeah. – the, uh, the person that greeted us there claimed that he is the, the son or grandson, I'm not sure exactly, um, of the king, of the most recent king. And um, and he certainly carried himself in a regal fashion, but he demanded some money in a very, very polite way, which, of course, we gave him. It wasn't much. And um, um, and we talked with him for a while about, you know, his family and those adventures, but we made our way further. We went into this area that had been the, the Tomb of the Kings, and uh, it was very quiet. And, you know, it had some soul about it, but it didn't turn out to be the most special thing about that place. Um after a while, we made our way out of it and went on around the building, the far corner. In the northernmost corner of the building, there's a kind of a causeway that parallels the building itself um, on the water side of it. And uh, as you go along the causeway, there's these trees. Well, we had read in, on a map that had some additional information to just the map information about what's on Panape that the ancient people worshipped trees, among other things, and goddesses. And... Um, and we kind of put that together and thought that that would be um, interesting if we could find any evidence of this. And we kind of, we had our senses up looking for it. And um, and then we got to the far corner of this, you know, sort of palatial structure, um, and we saw this one tree that was set off, and it had a large sort of flagstone area built around it. Clearly it was a special tree. And we looked at the, the tree, and the roots of the tree formed like um, you would say that the roots looked like a woman's upper legs where they would meet the trunk of the body. And it was a very convincing um, sculptural uh, presentation. And, uh, and we thought to ourselves that if they were going to worship any tree, this would be a tree they would worship. <laughs> we were completely convinced, and I am to this day, 
that that was a very sacred tree to those people. And there was a reason why they had flagstones all around it in a circle right there next to the palace of the kings. So we took with us the, um, the Phytala, the sacred, um, the sun, moon, and tree amulet that's part of Veriferia. And we placed the Phytala on the tree um, in the, uh, the, the, the expected place that you might expect to place something sacred. And um, uh, took some photos and uh, made some little offerings and uh, sang the Cory prayer, which is a, a prayer of thanksgiving. And um, we were delighted to find it because it felt like a real sanctuary. It was a, a beautiful experience. Yeah. And, uh, John, you found, a, you found a waterfall back in the back back in the jungle, right? Um, yeah, I guess so. we had uh, we had I mean, heard a lot about. There's a number of sacred waterfalls in the um, on this island, and we had been talking with various people about different ones. And you know, there are there's kind of a tourist track that's close to the road uh, with a number of waterfalls that so you can if you search the internet you see pictures of them because um, people go there and take pictures. Um, and then. We were asking around if, if there, you know, there was some that were more, you know, interesting, like that, that the local people would go to. And um, so they, they, I forget who it was exactly, who kind of caught our drift and said, oh, well, you should talk to this, this one. Uh, it was the lady at the hotel registry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, she, she knew somebody. Yeah, she knew somebody. And this, this somebody had a vehicle, which is a good thing because it, it's way up on the mountain. And... Um, so he agreed to take us there, and uh, so we drove way. I'm, I'm glad somebody else was. You know, it's not like there's street signs or anything, but it's a series of dirt tracks going up in the in the jungle, and then we finally uh, stopped in this one area and and started to walk. And um, the the uh, I mean the, the the trail was definitely washed out in places, so, so it was it was interesting to see. Oh, am I going to end up at the bottom of this slide or not? But then we got to a very uh, uh, an interesting overhanging cliff. Um, oh, let me let me introduce it a little little easier. That, that one of the other people we talked to said, "Well, if she likes you, you know, she will, you know, you will get wet. And if she doesn't like you, you will be pushed away from the from the uh, the waterfall." And um, so we didn't know exactly what that meant. Because we got there, and the, the ceiling of this cave is dripping from oh, 40 or 50 feet above us. Uh, and and our, the, our guide did to pour off a piece of greenery and added it to a, a stack of, of dried uh, vegetation in, in the in the cave, and replaced a rock on top of the stack. It all there, yeah. and actually, and and with his lead, we did the same thing. And um, it was for the god it was Luke. The god Luke. L L U K L U K. Yeah, and uh, so we did that, and he showed us where we could stand under a, a dripping part of the waterfall and stuff like that, and then then said, "Oh, there's another one farther that you want to go there." But he didn't make it sound he, too he promising. He didn't make it sound very promising at all. But you know, we were very interested in seeing what there was, so we we scrambled down the hill, and, and after slippery. a while, the, the rocks were got pretty slippery because they were pretty pretty wet, and um, we got down to the bottom of this where where the the waterfall poured off the above us i don't know uh over a hundred feet, maybe a couple hundred feet up there um and it just sprayed down all over these these uh rocks which were suggested yeah. rocks 
roots, I would say, in the same way that the uh, the tree the tree was suggested, and um, and the cleft right between the main rocks was definitely the focus of the waterfall, and and you know of course our attention also, and uh, we we spent oh. A, an hour. A, an hour easily, uh, yeah, just uh, reveling in this waterfall, and which was calm and, and get, definitely getting us wet. But I could see how it, in this uh, the interior of this jungle, it rains probably, you know, 400 inches a year or something like that. So you could see how flash. Oh, that, that's out. the large, that island has more rain than just about anywhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an impressive amount, and you can tell how you know sometimes there would be a lot of water coming out of here, and it would push people away. Um, but we did yeah. not have that experience. And then uh, when we were coming, you know, after after we we're done there for for a we while, we were laughing. Yeah, Let's we were laughing. Remember, this was a kind of a high, like we were giggling because it was such an ecstatic experience. Yeah, I think ecstatic is is the right uh, right term. And uh, and the the uh, our our guide there was was definitely he he was he was pretty happy to hang out as, as long as 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 we wanted he he was fully supportive of our enjoying this waterfall, and then uh, when we finally went to leave and we retraced our pathway back to where his uh, vehicle was, um, and you know a woman from a, living in a nearby hut was all excited like oh now maybe some tourists were going to leave some money behind and. And he waved to her and said, "No, no, these these people are 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 not. Uh, <clears throat> they're appreciators as we are of the waterfall. It was a it was a pilgrimage site, and you know it was a pilgrimage for us, really. I suppose. Yeah. So um, we did our quarter prayer there too. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So yeah, yeah, we did. So it was all in all, it was a pretty interesting experience. I think I'd say that the people there are very very close to the land, and that oh, was, yeah. um that was it was very really? intriguing to find that those those people everyone everybody on that island has a title they are so genealogically and heredity oriented that every single person on the, the island they really really know their ge- their their genealogies and they keep their lineages very very uh, straight and uh, right and everybody everybody has a title of some kind just to give you a joke about that i was over there with a young lady who uh who met the one guy on the island who did not have a title and his name was wilson and of course the island uh, the islands really is basically part of america you know they use our money our post office and down of course the dea crawls all over the island because because they're growing a lot of marijuana back there in the jungle and so huh. we had the DEA, we had the DEA out there, you know, for quite a while. But my little, the little girl that I took over there, they love American women. Uh, the boys do, uh, the Micronesian boys, because they say that American women are hard to get, and, and uh, Panapean women are are very complacent. So so they really love American women. And that and that girl I took over there. Everybody in Pontepe goes to the Palm Terrace Bar uh, at around about five o'clock for happy hour. The president, the president of Micronesia, and his cabinet, and and everybody, including including the the head of the of the prison island, that's Ant Island, which is a little island right off right off the coast, and that's uh, that's the prison island. It's called Ant, and the king of Ant Island. My little girlfriend was. 
or he's flirting with him, and I thought that might be a good idea in case in case we happen to get arrested. <laughs> the, that, that, we, that it was good that she was making up to the king of Ant Island. Everybody has, has a title. In fact, when we went down to Tanan Madol, down, down in the Millennium, we paid the king's son, and he was 12 years old. I don't, yeah, I don't think you met met this kid, and he was 12 years old, and he was sitting out on a rock, and we came in on an outboard, in a sampan, you know, or with an Evan Rube outboard on it, and and here's this kid, this 12-year-old kid, sitting on a rock as we come in, uh, come in the canal, uh, coming in, in toward Don to us, and he's got his hand out uh, for the $10 bill, you know, uh, which is which is the, the fee that the king gets uh, for for non I don't know I don't know whether they still collect that or not. But uh yeah, what, we did, did they, they, they did? Older now. how much was it this time when you were there? Um he only charged us three dollars a person. There was three of us, so it was nine dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but we walked in from the land <laughs> side, so you know might be more if you were coming on a boat. <laughs> yeah. Anyway you had pockets. Uh, talk about the construction. I want to tell a story that I heard when I was there, I collected a lot of, you know, I'm as much of a uh, of an anthropologist as Merritt, uh, as, as Merritt that wrote the moon pool, and I collected all kinds of stories over there. And those basalt prisms, those bas- great big, like great big logs of basalt to make that log cabin structure, all those log cabin type structures that they, that they made out of these stone blocks. They got most of the most of those bas- that basalt came from Sokin's Rock, up on the north end of the island. You know that that big uh, that big rock up there by Colonia. It's kind of like Diamond's yes. Head on uh, on uh, yes. Diamond's Head next uh, in Hawaii. Well, what right. they did uh, to build Don Dewas, they 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 kind of heat treated those uh, the side of the of of uh, Sokin's Rock and crack those big pillars off. If you listen to them, they say, "Yeah." Then we then we flew them down there with magic. <laughs> that's what they that's what they told us. The story I heard, and I did not confirm this, but the story I heard was that during World War II, the Japanese Army took Singapore on bicycles. They rode bicycles down down the Malay Peninsula and and took Singapore. And when they took Singapore, they captured really big British coast defense guns. These coast defense guns were as big as, you know, as big as the rifles on battleships. And they weighed each each one of these. They were, you know, 14-inch coast defense guns, 14-inch barrels. And, And the Japanese captured them, and they thought they got the idea that, well, why don't we why don't we take one of them up to Ponape and put it on the top of Sokin's Rock, and we can keep the Americans off of Ponape with this this big British gun? So they they managed to send it up there. They they sent the they sent the the gun up to Ponape on a on a freighter, and somehow they got it off the freighter on onto the pier at Colonia. Then the commander, the Japanese commander, had this gun, and and the ship left, and and how, and he stuck with the problem of how do I get it up on top of Sokin's Rock? And that's when an old Shamero, and that's what they call a shaman in Ponape, a Shamero, 
And old Shamero, Bonape and Shamero said, well, look, if you pay us what we ask, and I don't know what the figure was, but it was it was a good figure in, 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 uh, in British pounds or money or whatever. He said, we will get the gun up on top of Sokin's Rock for you. That we have one condition. And so the Japanese commander said, and what's that? And the Chimera said, don't watch us doing it. We don't want to be observed. You know, you pay us, then you, then you, you go, to, go to your barracks and go to sleep and come up the next morning, and we'll have the gun. The gun's going to be up on top of, on top of the rock for you. And then, uh, and, you know, so the commander said, okay, if you can do that, uh, we'll pay you. And, and supposedly they did it. And according to what I've heard, that that old gun is still up on top of the rock, rusting away up there on top it of the is. rock. It is. We saw it. Did, you, did you see it? it. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. It's way up there. It's a long hike, and it's a steep and sweaty one. Yeah, it's a bit of a rock climb in places. And, uh, so getting it up but that, big old, that, that big old gun from Singapore is still up there. Still up it's there. It's still up there. It's a little rusty. Oh, that's great. Now... <laughs> Now let's let's examine this a little bit because of course you know we are we are magical periphery and the OT are magical so and this is the Hermetic Hour so let's examine this a little bit if you want prestige on Panape and of course these people with all their titles and everything and uh, kings dukes princes and everything that they are they prestige is what they like and if you really want to get prestige on Panape which is a rural you know it's 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 kind of a uh, a rural sort of a hunter gatherer culture. Then if you can grow the biggest yam, the prestige that you gain by by bringing the biggest yam uh, into the you know into the village or whatever, that's real prestige. And these yams, these giant this you know like a giant sweet potato, these yams that can can be so big that they weigh almost a ton. They're huge. And these guys can lift the, they they can lift these great big great big yams out of the ground and carry them. Now that's big mana. That's Hawaiian talk for uh, chi power, you know. Mana tapu, of course, is negative power, and mana is good power. Boy, it takes big mana to lift a yam like that, and it must well, it have taken mana to, how, to grow. How much? How much? How much mana did it take to get that gun up on top of the rock? Oh, serious, serious. Yeah, big money, very serious money. That's why the Chimero didn't want the want the Japanese looking at, looking at him. He figured, by gosh, if they see us do that, they're going they're going to have us uh, doing all kinds of stuff that we probably don't want to do. So, oh, he yeah. said, don't watch us. Yeah. Anyway, that may be really how they built Nan Mado with just plain magical human strength. Now. I want to mention something else while we're on the subject here. I said earlier that uh, Graham Hancock and Ann Hatcher Childress and, and Georgie Sokolis and all those guys, they have been, ever since Gobeki Tepe was discovered, and that was back in 2000, I think it was about 2010 or something that they, they dug that up in Turkey. This Gunung uh, Padang in Indonesia, uh, that was several years later. But what these ancient ruins, and antediluvian, in other words, before the flood, these ancient ruins, both Gobeki Tepe and 
Padang Mountain in Indonesia. They have virtually proved that there really was an ancient Ice Age civilization because the sea level was in some places 400 feet deeper down the bottom. So many of these pre-Diluvian, anti-Diluvian cities of this ancient civilization are underwater. And Kanamwiso, off the breakwater in Nandawal, supposedly it's about 200 feet down. We got some pretty good video that Mark took that we have on the film. We got we got some footage at 80 feet. And Graham Hancock uh, has, has some also in his Netflix series. I did some pre-diving off the breakwater, and I saw one of those pillars, one of the ones that Graham Hancock has, has photographed when he was underwater. And I saw that when I was out there. I didn't get a picture of it because I didn't take the camera down with me, but I saw it, one of those common we saw pillars. And uh, the two brothers, Olusopa and Olusipa, that came over from, from the mainland, they looked down into the water and they saw the ruins, and then they mobilized the Panapeans to build Don Mado in honor of Kanamwiso, the city sunken right under Don Mado. And this is an Ice Age city. Now, could have been started 20,000 years ago, although Don Mado itself was built much later. However, Graham Hancock has covered all this in his 2015 book, Fingerprints of the Gods, and Hatcher Childress has written several books on it. And Hancock has just been pilloried by the so-called scientific experts, you know, like that Schumer guy that uh, edits the Skeptic magazine. Even Scientific American printed one of his articles debunking Padang and debunking Nanmadol in the process. Now, Gunung Padang, if you look at that mountain in Java, have you have you guys seen that thing yet? Yeah, we did go ahead and look up several, um, some videos and some articles about it. And those blasphemous prisms look just like the ones in Nanmadol. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They and sure do. Make that shape, but the thing that I was noticing though was that they had placed them into a, a very clear oval. The the shape was like an enclosure, and there was no question it was a very clear enclosure, and it wasn't, you know, like an, a kind of a random happenstance of rocks that just happened to fall. Oh yeah, it, it was really clearly yeah. a shape that was yeah. set up in order to enclose a very specific yeah. space. Yeah, and what's interesting is what's inside of it, and they've carbon dated the, the structure underneath. The, yeah, the older structure goes go, really way, way back. That's yeah, true. I mean, some of the carbon dating things are 25,000 years. I think that was the oldest one. Was the yeah. one the furthest down, the very first level yeah. was around 22 to 25,000 years ago, which is very, yeah. very, very old. I wish Fred, Fred had been alive to see this because one of Fred's favorite books was Hamlet's Mill. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, when did uh, De Santa Ana and Von Decken postulate that the Zodiac was created? Uh, well, no, there's a question. Yeah, just about the time, just about the time they started work on the lowest level in Mount Padang. When De Santa Ana and Von Decken said that the Zodiac was born. Interesting. You've got a copy of uh, of Hamlet's Mill. Inside, yeah, yeah, I got, I got, inside I got, the I got, inside the end papers, you'll you'll have a a timeline on the zodiac. Check it out. I think you'll find it's about 
22. Yeah. I'll look for that. But I'm trying to clarify. I have a question, which I think is important for people to understand. We, we generally think that the Ice Age ended around 11,000 before the Common Era, I believe. But when yeah, did it yeah. start? When did what? it start? When did the Ice Age start, the most recent Ice Age? I think it started before uh, 20,000 20, B.C. Oh. Oh, yeah. So you're saying it that, lasted a good long while. That, that actually these things were going on while the Ice Age was going on. Yes, because it trapped the, the water. Cold. They were able to build these. If you see that Netflix series that Hancock has, they show there was a continent, Java and, and uh, the Malay Peninsula and, and Southeast Asia were all all one okay. one continent. Kanamwiso off the breakwater, 200 feet down. And the reason why I know that is that the Australians, an Australian team, and I've heard this from several people out there on the island, and, and one of the archaeologists from the University of Oregon told me this. There was an Australian diving crew back in the 1950s that actually did that dive. They actually dived. They got down 200 feet, and they got underwater photographs of Kanamwiso 200 feet down. That underwater footage has been totally suppressed. The suppression of this evidence has gone on, gone on too long. Unfortunately, that that really is. Um, of course, I'm I'm way too old for scuba now, and 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 I think I think Hatcher is too. And I don't know about Giorgio. Maybe he could maybe he could get a pair of doubles on. But that's a mixed gas dive, and that's dangerous. A mixed gas dive yeah. is dangerous, but. Somebody has got to do that Kanamwiso dive. Now that we're no longer suppressing this stuff, because that Australian footage, and I asked Gordon White about it, because he knows a lot about it, and he said he'd heard about it too. It's buried somewhere, unless or it's been destroyed. That Australian footage is like the Bimini Road, you know, the footage of the, on the Bimini <laughs> Road. They don't want to realize that it's real. I almost got no. kicked out of an anthropology class for even mentioning it. I mentioned oh, yeah. the, the Bimini Road and the instructor just about just just almost threw me out. Well here's an idea. So, this is crazy. Our friend Patricia Ancona just got certified for deep water diving. Keep that in your bonnet. You have, <laughs> yeah, you Patricia have? Ancona. No, not me. Patricia Ancona. Our fair well, pretty deep. I I don't think Pat's in any shape to do it to no, do it. Uh, she just got certified for deep water diving. She did. Isn't that crazy? Well so she's a candidate. Oh, I, I didn't promote this show to, uh, to promote another non-Madole expedition, but if you guys okay. want to want to work on it, okay. Uh, I'm not going to dive, but <laughs> but I'll well, sit, I, I you know now actually with technology we could pro- there's probably some robotic ways to get some cameras. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah. that is what that's exactly what uh, Giorgio Sukolos tried to do. He tried to do it with drones. He took his drones and he tested them up around Colonia, and he said they worked fine. But he got both his drones down to the breakwater, down to uh, Kanamwiso, and he put them in the water, and they started getting so much magnetic interference, uh, he claimed, that they didn't work. And so he didn't get any, any, any decent footage at all. I don't know whether he was just making an excuse or not. They did some very good CGI Showing all kinds of blue light coming out of the, the you know, out of the prisms on the breakwater. But uh, 
I don't think that proves anything. That just proves they got, no, they got good CGI a, yeah. CGI capability. Right. But, yeah, uh, we're both in full effects world. I sent a copy of our abstract on this show to Childress, and I hope maybe we could get Prometheus Productions off their tails and get some divers out there that are willing to do that dive and actually get down there and show us show us what those structures look like. That's one of the purposes of this show. If they won't do it, maybe we can do it. <laughs> yeah, well, Patricia's going to be going down, uh, like, maybe this coming weekend. She's going down pretty soon to some pretty deep water locations, I think around the 150-foot depth with um, a group of friends that are going to be going down in um, the southern part of the Bahamas, I believe. I, don't, I can't tell you the exact area. Having been certified myself, 100-foot free ascent is part of what you have to do. There's a lot of difference between 100 feet and 200 feet. You down 200 feet, that pressure is doing things with the nitrogen in your bloodstream that you don't even want to think about. <laughs> and, and that's why, like I say, I, I don't even think I could stand up with a pair of tanks now. I'm certainly too old to do it. But it needs to be done. But this um, the dang thing, those chambers under that mountain, they need to be gotten into because, quite frankly, I believe that any people capable of building something like that probably have some system of writing. And if we can get down into those chambers, we could probably find some written records, I would imagine. And, of course, we've all been trying to get uh, get through Zawi Hawass and get down under the Sphinx. We all want to <laughs> do that, but Zawi, Zawi Hawass won't let us. What else can we uh, can we think of to add to this? Well, well, it's interesting thinking about Ice Age cultures living in the Pacific, and just because the, I mean there was such different land there, and uh, actually in, during some of the research for the show, we discovered um, uh, that there was a um, PhD student who, oh yeah, up in British Columbia, there's uh, they found <clears throat> evidence of a old civilization there, and they we're looking at the um the remains of a of a a place where they had you know they they had a lot of tool making and and uh and then they had a a place where they had a remnants of fires which was kind of fortunate because that resulted in a coal there that they could uh carbon date and the carbon dating on it what the, I want to get the figures right. I believe it was twelve thousand. Yeah, BCE. BCE. Yeah. So that's you know pretty you know that's three times as old as pyramid. Yeah, easy. So um and and this was a fishing society, you know, hunting gathering, but but they you know maritime cultures are very mobile and they're very uh, adept at at um, moving around that. Something, something Graham Hancock pointed out, and I think we should really think about it. The skeptics, of which, of course, that Schumer in the Skeptic magazine, and the anthropologists want to defend their position because they're still into, into Marxist Darwinianism and the idea is everything has to evolve from the simple to the complex. And oh, not at you, all. Yeah. And, and if you dare, if you dare to utter the A word, then you're talking about something much more complex than simple in, in early history. 
And therefore, the A word is politically incorrect for these people. You lose your tenure uh, if you're if you're an, if you're an academic if you say the A word. And of course, we can't call them merely of the L word because the I think that's already been taken. But uh, anyway, what's the L word? Help me out. The L, yeah. yeah. But we we can't mention these things. They're 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 politically incorrect from the archaeological point of view because most American and British archaeologists are Marxists. The Atlantis, Atlantis and Lemurian theories go completely against Marxist archaeology, completely. Well, and you're so therefore, right about that. They, oh yeah, they're dead set against it. I found that out when I was in anthropology. As I said, I, I almost got thrown out by a class for mentioning the, mentioning the Bimini Road. And I dared to suggest that we create an anomaly bureau so we could stop these people from throwing stuff over their shoulder in digs. You know, somebody finds something in, in a dig, something in a culture layer that, uh, that looks like more advanced uh, than the culture, and they throw, they destroy, they destroy it. They get rid of it. Oh, that's an insertion. They say, you know, these people have been yeah. suppressing. Well, it, it rocks the boat. And, yeah, they've and been suppressing the evidence uh, of this, of these, and, you know, uh, of these antediluvian civilizations. And Joe, you've been in the hypogeum. I have. That's an impressive point. Yeah, that is antediluvian. Yeah, um, I, I think I think it's um, around 3,500 BCE. Um, which wouldn't be quite antediluvian. I'm pretty sure that they've dated that pretty clearly. It, it's a, a really impressive place, and it's insanely old, but um, but not quite antediluvian, right? I mean, I'm not sure exactly yeah. when the uh, the deluge is supposed uh, to happen. You very, me. very sure. old. I think we could kind of wrap it up. Anyway, let's pursue this idea of getting somebody to do the to do the dive out there. All right. And, and, I think that's a good idea. Uh, thanks so much for calling in. And take a look at that Netflix, uh, that Hancock's Netflix series. I think you'll find that interesting. Okay? All right. Sounds good. And for those of you listening out there, we got a quid pro quo on all the information we gave you. And that quid pro quo is this. We have a film which has footage of Don Madole and has footage of the top of the top end of Conomuiso, underwater footage. And it's in Beyond Liberia, and you can get that, and you can get, you can get show. You show the hypogeum briefly on on. Uh, uh, you've got some Malta footage on on Beyond on Dancing in Gaia, right? Right. I have footage of uh, a number of places in Malta. Um, I photo of that I took inside the hypogeum, but I can't recall exactly right now what's in there because. It was a while ago that I made it, but there's a lot of fascinating footage of know, uh, the goddess. You know, I know you've got a lot of you've got a lot of Malta, Malta footage on there. Dancing with Gaia and Beyond Lemuria are both available from PokeRunion.com. That's our bookstore. Take our word for it. We beat Hancock and we beat Childress and Sukulis the non-Madol, and we got there first. And we want you to share it. We want to share it with you. So. Thanks again, Joe and John, and uh, we'll follow up on this. And anyway, see you all next week. And until then, good magic. Good magic. Good night.